Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. We are a week away from Christmas Day, and while Christmas is not about things, gifts, or groceries, there is no doubt Bidenomics has proven to be the real-life Grinch stealing real-life money right out of our wallets and bank accounts. So let's put it in perspective with a holiday classic. Remember that iconic scene from Home Alone wherein Kevin made that solo trip to the grocery store? Well, this scene was shot in 1990, two years before I was even born, fun fact. But needless to say, things have gotten a little more expensive in the last 33 years. But just how expensive, you ask? Well, thanks to Joe and the economy Gavin Newsom and fellow Democrats say is just peachy, that grocery store haul from 1990, the half gallon of milk, half gallon of orange juice, TV dinner, a loaf of Wonder Bread, frozen mac and cheese, liquid detergent, saran wrap, a bag of toy soldiers, snuggle dryer sheets, and toilet paper cost about 20 bucks. Well, today, thanks to Bidenomics, his trip would cost about 250% more than that for a rough grand total of about 55 bucks. Now, one caveat to that, if you're an illegal immigrant, your total would be $0. So I guess Bidenomics does work so long as you're not a taxpaying American citizen. But speaking of money and wasting it on people, places, and things that provide no benefit to those funding it, it is time once again to open the books, an exercise that might make your blood and eggnog boil, but a necessary one nonetheless. Joining me now is the man behind those open books, CEO and founder, a public servant to us all, Adam Angievsky. Adam, it's great to see you. As always, I know that you're going to tell us about all the things we are wasting our money on this year and years to come, I'm sure. So I want to start out with, as I just discussed, the unaccompanied minors, the illegal immigrants that are streaming across our southern border. How much is that running up our tab? Well, it hasn't gotten enough attention, Tommy, and thanks for covering it. At, since 2012, the United States taxpayer has put $13 billion into the unaccompanied minor program, and the costs on this program are spiking. It's the unintended consequences of an open border. So for last year in 2022, that's the latest year for full statistics, there was an incredible 150,000 unaccompanied minors. These are children under 18 years of age that come across the border without a parent or without a guardian. And the cost to taxpayers in 22 was nearly $3 billion to take care of these kids. And that was up a billion dollars year over year. I can't imagine what it's going to be looking like for this calendar year, given the fact that we've got thousands coming over in each individual sector per day, if not more than that. And a lot of these are those unaccompanied minors. But even if they're not unaccompanied minors, even if they're families or they're single adult males, it really doesn't matter because as far as I know, I'm pretty sure we're footing the bill for all of that. Their medical expenses, their food, their shelter. They go to the sanctuary cities. They get four-star hotels and New York City. Um, what is this? Can you predict what this is going to cost us in the next year, just based on the current numbers that are currently coming across our border, if you had to just make an estimate? So the costs are, are peaking. I would, I would imagine another billion dollars just for the unaccompanied children will be added to that budget, about $4 billion. And look, it's a human health catastrophe for these children. Um, uh, look, we need to know who's here 
where they're at and when they're going home. Tommy, we're even losing uh, we're even losing the location of the adults. A report just broke. It wasn't us. It was somebody else that 200,000 adults. We don't know where they're at in the system because they didn't put honest addresses or any addresses on their official paperwork. We do know that we have lost track of 85,000 children in the system. This is a system where the kids are being recruited out of South America. They're being smuggled across the border by the cartels. They then go into the U.S. Office of Refugee uh, uh, Resettlement. They're supposed to be then uh, given to a vetted sponsor. The sponsors aren't vetted. They don't return phone calls when the checkups happen. And there's been 85,000 children lost within the system. It's a human trafficking operation. Yeah, it's a human trafficking operation. It's a humanitarian crisis. It's a disaster for the American people and legal immigrants who cared enough about this country to do it the right way. I know that this is a little off topic, and I know that you might not have the exact numbers of this, but we, we know that these individuals, as you mentioned, a lot of them get the notice to appear, and they don't appear. Then they live in the United States. Then they have children in the United States. We fund that. But the constant argument we hear from a certain side of the political aisle is that these people are contributing. They are paying their taxes. Justin, in the work that you've done on this, is it safe and fair to say that these people are making up for their costs by way of working and contributing through their taxes? Look, we, you know, the whole system's broken if you don't have a defended border. The whole system's broken and you can't track anything uh, that you want me to weigh in on if you don't know who where and where people are in the country. So first off, you know, you've got to establish a system of rules that are followed where whereby you can actually uh, bring people into the country. We're all in favor of legal immigration. Uh, you know, our national debt's going north of 34 trillion. We need hardworking American citizens in this country and a lot more of them to spread the national debt. Yeah, no kidding. Well, speaking of other areas and places that we're wasting money on, I want to turn now to our elite universities. They've been in the headlines a lot in the last couple of weeks for their failure to condemn anti-Semitism and the genocide of Jews. We saw the UPenn president, of course, resigning due to that. A couple others have yet to be pushed out. But I saw an interesting open the books report on this, that although the American taxpayer might just be infuriated of the optics of all of this and the blatant anti-Semitism things that just make us feel bad, we're also paying for these elite universities that are churning out this kind of product. How much money are we spending and how are we spending money? A lot of people probably are unaware that the American taxpayer is footing a bill for any of these elite universities. Yeah, these elite universities like the Ivy League, like Harvard, Stanford, Northwestern, they get more money from taxpayers than what they collect on undergraduate student tuition. And that's been our research at OpenTheBooks.com since 2017. And when Republicans slapped the first ever excessive endowment tax on these wealthy elite universities in 2017, in the American Job Jobs Act and Tax Cuts Act signed by Trump, everybody else got a tax cut, but a, a, a tax hike was slapped on those universities. At the Boston Globe, they cited our work as an impetus for that tax. And now U.S. Senator J.D. Vance has submitted legislation in Congress to up the tax from 1.4% on their investment gains to 35%. Wealthy Americans, Tommy, you know, pay 23.5% capital gains tax rates at the highest level. And there's a lot of capital gains to be paid just in the past five years. 
the Ivy League plus Stanford and Northwestern, their endowment has increased by $65 billion. Wow. And then to see the product that they're churning out, it's stomach churning, really. We're spending money on these universities. So really, the American taxpayer does have a stake in these decisions, even if you don't go to Harvard, even if you don't have a child that goes to Harvard or any of these elite universities. This is something that we are actively paying into. So we should have a little bit more public pressure and a say in it if we're spending this kind of money. I want to move on now to another area. You know, when I have you, I talk about all the things we're wasting money on. Let's turn now, and we've had this discussion many times, let's turn now to the Middle East, because that's the other big topic of discussion, whether it's our elite universities um, kind of coddling and shielding Hamas, or it's us just sending money over to directly fund terrorists. Tell me what Open the Books has discovered as far as our funding and our propping up of people and places that, quite frankly, hate us and want to wipe us and Israel off the map. You know, Donald Trump, he stopped uh, Palestinian aid froze it for the first time in 71 years of that subsidy. Uh, Biden restarted it and in his first three years has put $1 billion into Palestinian aid. And much of that was siphoned off, you know, by terrorist organizations for their pet projects. Uh, Look, everybody wanted to know how much U.S. foreign aid we had put into Israel. And during the Biden years, the first three years, it's been a little less than $7 billion. And that's been dwarfed by our aid to the Middle East, a total of $21 billion. So for every dollar that flowed into Israel, and all of it was for their defense, and now we know how important that was, $2 went to the other 17 countries in the Middle East. Jordan received about $4 billion, and large chunks of that, billions of dollars, were on cash payments. We have uh, in in Saudi Arabia, U.S. taxpayers actually funded a $340,000 public relations campaign to try to convince wealthy Saudis not to have cheetahs as pets. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm sure glad that we can contribute to that important effort there. I think maybe Carol Baskin and Tiger King could have probably done that for a lot cheaper, but that's just me, you know, thinking ahead of the game here. Now, I want to ask you about this Middle East funding. You say we're sending all this money over to the Middle East, to these 17 countries. What is the guise for that money? What what do our leaders say that money is for? I'm sure a lot of it turns into terrorism or sponsorship of terrorism in one way or another. But what is it billed as? Well, you'll you'll talk to the State Department. They say that it's in our strategic national best interest to fund this area of the world. We need friends. We need allies. And that's basically what the money is for, for our strategic interest. Um, Look, all of that aid is dwarfed by the Biden policy aid on the look the other way on oil sanctions for Iran. It's been a bull market for the mullahs in Iran because Biden won't enforce the hard sanctions on the Iranian sale of oil, say, to China. They, uh, Biden wanted detente with China, with Iran. He got a twofer when he looks the other way and allows Iran to sell their cheap oil to China. And it has enriched the mullahs to the tune of about $50 billion. And meanwhile, Americans that work in fossil fuels or in coal country, they're essentially being put out of work because of climate change. And meanwhile, we're giving sweetheart deals to nations that hate us, want to kill us, and wish that we were wiped completely and entirely off the map. I'm glad that we're putting in our good humanitarian effort to make these people like us. I'm not so sure there are enough billions in the world to make these people like us, but I'm sure glad that the Biden administration has given it a whack, given it a go. Uh, The next thing I want to talk about is another third world country, and that is California. So uh, I was so happy to see, and when we have the clip, I want to play it, but uh, I 
I believe that Governor Ron DeSantis actually used a little bit of content provided by Open the Books to provide us with what I think was debate gold a few weeks ago when he debated Governor Gavin Newsom. Let's take a look at this and talk about it after. Well, I'm looking at total time. Governor DeSantis yeah, look, about two minutes. This, 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 this is a map of San Francisco. <laughs> There's a lot of plots on that. You may be asking, what is that plotting? Well, this is an app where they plot the human feces that are found on the streets of San Francisco. And you see how almost the whole thing is covered because that is what has happened in one of the previous greatest cities this country's ever had. Human feces is now a, a fact of life, except when a communist dictator comes to town. Then they cleaned up the streets. They lined the streets with Chinese flags. From fiscal and financial waste to actual human waste, Tell me about that poop map and what you can tell us about maybe how much money they're spending, we're spending on waste of all sorts and types. So that was 2019. We created that map. It trended on national Twitter. We got a lot of news headlines. We are really proud of that. We reframed using one picture, the human health catastrophe of the homeless crisis in San Francisco. I was really proud that our work made that debate. And many people, like you said, thought it was the key moment. Well, as soon as that went up, of course, we stayed up all night. We downloaded the fresh data over the course of the past three and a half years in San Francisco. We created a new map. And Tommy, breaking right here on your program, it's worse than ever. So we we that huh. map DeSantis held up had 130,000 cases of human waste in the public way. The new map has 270,000 cases. And last year was a peak year, almost 36,000 cases of human waste on city streets in one year. In one year, human waste. Uh, you know, as Governor DeSantis said, one of the greatest cities in the United States completely overrun by actual crap, thanks to crap leaders. And they actually, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe San Francisco also has a poop task force that's supposed to go and clean this up when a Chinese dictator comes to town, of course, but also they've had to you know, enforce a squad of people to clean up this poop because it's not sanitary and it can make people sick. That's got to be a pretty pricey tag for the constituents of San Francisco as well, I'm sure. Well, they call it the poop patrol and they make a lot of money and they might be the only public servant in San Francisco that is earning their money. They make up to one hundred and eighty five thousand dollars a year. I mean, that's so. a small price tag for someone to go and clean up the waste of tweakers and homeless people. I think they're underpaid, to be honest with you. But, you know, when going back to this, that debate, there's a lot of numbers that were thrown around in that debate. And I imagine as someone like yourself listening to that and watching Gavin Newsom try to protest the very real graphics and data that were provided by Sean Hannity and the team at Fox News. What was your initial thought when you saw him trying to contradict the facts that were on the table? And, and what were you thinking that you would respond if you were in the place of a governor, Ron DeSantis? Well, it was obvious that uh, DeSantis, he had the facts and figures. And when you do, you argue them. On the other side of the table with Newsom, he was in a tough spot. I mean, how do you argue against uh, what the Democrats would refer to as data science? Uh, you're, as a Democrat, you're supposed to be in favor of data science. So Newsom was in a tough spot. Uh, he just tried to smile his way out of these things, and it doesn't work on the national stage. When DeSantis held up the map of San Francisco, look, a picture, Tommy, it tells a thousand words. There was just no escape. You know, uh, at, at the end of that, it was just Governor Poop. 
Yeah. Governor Poop is exactly right. And that was is what we will heretofore refer to Governor uh, Governor Newsom as greasy poop governor. Um, coming up in the brand new year, what is Open the Books going to be focusing on? I know you guys do so much. You have so many investigations. You're sleuthing through everything to see the waste that our government is, is putting on the American taxpayer. But come this new year, what are you guys going to be focusing on the most? Well, I think the first week, Dr. Tony Fauci is in front of Congress to testify. And we're subject matter experts on the Fauci family finances. And so, Tommy, we'll be ready. And I'll, I would like to come back on your program to discuss our findings in real time as Dr. Fauci testifies. Oh, I cannot wait for that. Please do. My show is your platform anytime, especially to expose that little tiny tyrant. Uh, so many tyrants to discuss that are wasting our money. Well, thank you so much for everything that you do at Open the Books. You guys are an excellent resource, poop maps and all. And we certainly appreciate it. A very happy holiday to you and a happy new year. And I, I can't wait for that, uh, that subject matter to come up in the new year regarding Fauci. Please do come back. Thank you, Tommy. All right. Starting on January 3rd, yes, the new year, the only place to catch OutKick's original and fearless shows live will be on our website, OutKick.com. So head to the watch tab so you don't miss a beat. All right. Despite the left's best efforts, COVID is over. But with a mysterious wave of respiratory illnesses sweeping over parts of China, could another lab-made Wuhan virus be on its way just in time for mail-in ballot season? Well, earlier this week, I sat down with our good friend, scientist and cardiologist Dr. Peter McCullough, and this is what he had to say. Dr. McCullough, as always, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk about what they're calling a COVID surge or a respiratory illness surge in China and other parts of the world. Is this the real deal or are they just trying to scare us again? What do you know? Uh, the, the fear hype is, is definitely on. What appears to be going on in China is an outbreak largely among children of a macrolide-resistant mycoplasma pneumonia. So this is an unknown a bacterial pneumonia. It's a very small bacteria. It gets inside cells. It's normally treated with azithromycin or clarithromycin, but this form in China is, is resistant to the antibiotics. So we have to use uh, drugs called quinolones, ciprofloxacin, or tetracyclines like doxycycline, but it's easily treatable. Uh, there, there will be cases in the United States, there may be some in Ohio right now, but uh, you know the, the mystery is that Chinese don't have the standard multiplex testing to diagnose it, whereas in the United States, we diagnose it right away. So I wouldn't worry about it at all, but you're right. The press has picked this up and is really pressing the fear agenda. So question for you, why does it seem like a lot of these illnesses originate and start in China? Is that a coincidence or is there something else going on here, another lab situation? It just seems rather coincidental that this all starts in China again. But it is true for SARS-1, which uh, looked like it was the proximity of, of various forms of livestock in humans, and then SARS-CoV-2, which came out of the, the bio lab in, in Wuhan, uh, and now this outbreak of, of mycoplasma. I've been to China five times myself, and I can tell you it's, a, it's quite a vertical country. So not only is the population large, but they're not spread out. They're organized largely into high-rise buildings all over, even Wuhan, China has more high-rise buildings than probably most cities in the United States. So people are in close proximity to each other in the elevators, lobbies, the stairwells. 
And I just think illnesses spread so much more readily in China, large population, crowded vertical living. So let's talk about the masks then, because, you know, we notice even before COVID, a lot of people from Asia, they wear masks before it was a thing. They were always wearing masks. Does it help? Does it hurt? Is this something that's going to go away or is this something that's just always going to be in that part of the world? What can you tell us about the, the effectiveness of the, I guess, eternal masking? The Asians have been wearing masks, particularly the Chinese, for a long time. You're right. Every time I go over there, the majority of people are wearing masks. They do it with the belief that it can protect them against pollution. Well, let me tell you, the particulate matter of pollution moved right through the mask, and the pollution is heavy over there. It's not helping them. We know that masking over time does impair learning in children, tends to trap various bacteria and fungi, can actually cause sinusitis and other problems. And the, the biggest concern I have is there's been some studies showing that the fibers of the masks actually go down in the lungs and you can't get them out. They start to cause inflammation and problems. So wearing masks continually is it got into the belief system of the Chinese. And unfortunately, I think it's going to do harm long term. It's gotten into the belief system of a lot of American leftists and liberals as well. I mean, it's pretty obvious when you go into the airport and you see people that are still masked. It's pretty obvious to kind of identify their political affiliation. More times than not, it's accurate. They tend to be more on the left and the liberals. But what do you make of that? Do you think that there are some Americans who will stay masked eternally, kind of like those in Asian countries do? And if so, you mentioned some of the long-term implications. But what does it mean for them if they're wearing these masks, you know, on a daily basis, doing their jobs for an extended period of time. What does the next five, 10 years look like for them? I don't think it looks good. You know, personally, I wore a mask continuously for three years at work. I was in a big hospital and health system, so I know uh, what it's all about. And I took as many breaks as I possibly could. Uh, but people who do this voluntarily and they do it continuously, um, I do worry long term that they're going to have high, higher rates of actually sinusitis, bronchitis, uh, difficulty, certainly with, um, you know, sense of taste and smell, children, difficulty with learning. Wearing masks is not healthy. And I think we have to get that message across. You're right. It does seem to divide the political spectrum. I, I would give one caveat, Tommy, and that is People have had solid organ transplants and are chronically immunosuppressed. I think they do have a reason to wear masks to filter out large fungal spores and other organisms. But, you know, outside of somebody who had a transplant who's going out, you know, traveling or to a shopping mall, everybody should be breathing fresh air, no mask on the face. I also wonder for people that wear the same mask all day long, every day, even if they're disposable, they're washable, what have you. I mean, that was a big thing during COVID. I would see people wearing the same mask for three months at a time all day long. I can't imagine the filth that must be affixed to that mask. I mean, that seems like in and of itself would be toxic to not only breathe in your own filth, but have the world's filth stuck to your mouth and then put it around your ears and wear it every single day. What can you tell us about that? It's true. You know, we have oral and nails, nasal secretions for a reason, to actually get rid of things. But when the secretions are trapped in the mask, and then we rebreathe them, some of them are potentially aerosolized. We're rebreathing, you know, a variety of organisms as in the nasopharynx that should be actually leaving the body. Instead, they're coming back into the body. And there's the concern regarding sinusitis, chronic uh, mucosal irritation, um, 
again, the, the, the fiber is irritating the posterior pharynx, the trachea, uh, the larynx. Uh, and for all of these reasons, again, the human body, as well as all mammalian organisms, were meant to breathe fresh air unobstructed. Right. So a few months ago, maybe two months ago or so, the media really tried to bring COVID back. Some places were even considering implementing mask mandates for children in schools. I mean, they really tried to make it a thing. But it seems like the American people, and I give them credit on both sides of the political divide, kind of bucked that system and said, we're not going to do this again. So do you think the fact that COVID, or at least the fear of COVID, hasn't made this big resurgence, do you attribute that to the virus itself not being that deadly, or do you attribute it to the American people simply saying, no, we're not going to do this again? I attribute it to both. The outbreak wasn't as big or as extensive as what we thought. In fact, we're already back down this edge of this um, EG5, uh, FL1.5 HV curve. Uh, it never really evolved into a, you know, a huge blast uh, like some were predicting. But also the big difference, Tommy, is that we're ahead of this in the media now. So where we hear a false government narrative, now we hear a counter narrative. People like you and me and others, commentators, go on, and we're able to give people a different point of view, and then Americans can, can interpret this. They do their own research. Early on in the pandemic, there was no counter-narrative. So when the government said that this is scary and everybody needs to lock down, people went right into lockdown. Um, I, I, think, I think the government agencies are going to have a hard time driving this fear agenda anymore. People just have been awakened. They're looking around. They're asking questions, they're using their common sense, and they should, and they're right, there is no clear and present threat. We have very good treatment protocols now. We can't rely on the vaccines, they don't work, but forms of treatment work, and it is progressively milder with each case of COVID that people contract. So I've been seeing a lot of commercials recently trying to push the COVID vaccines. We saw the one with Travis Kelsey telling people, get your flu shot and your COVID shot at the same time. You can do a two for one. I just saw another one yet again today saying, hey, listen, you might have gotten a COVID shot, but they change every year. We've got better ones. Go get your COVID shot. We know that the numbers of Americans who are actually going and getting boosted and boosted and boosted are going down. But what would you tell folks that are seeing these commercials and thinking, oh, yeah, that last three shots I got were worthless, but now these commercials are telling me that the new set is better. Are they better, or is this just a propaganda campaign that's failing and the American people aren't buying it? It's false advertising. It's a propaganda campaign. The new boosters aren't progressively better. They've only been tested on animals. There are no large clinical trials in humans demonstrating that they stop the infection or reduce transmission. They don't reduce severity of illness in any randomized trial. They don't reduce chances of death and hospitalization. You know, I can tell you at this point in time, it's simply false advertising. The, the vaccines are not fully FDA licensed. They're under emergency use authorization with no emergency. And the companies are taking advantage of this. The government agencies are pushing this. Uh, Americans have had enough. They know it's false advertising. And, you know, uh, Ken Paxton in Texas, Texas has launched a lawsuit against Pfizer for deceptive trade practices. As he should. I'm happy to hear that. 
those that are actually going after the root causes of what was a, a period of time that destroyed a lot of people's lives, and not necessarily because of the virus itself, but because of the reaction to it and the tyranny that came with it. But you brought up animal testing. I want to ask you about something else kind of unrelated to COVID. Maybe it's related to COVID. I don't know. But there's been a string of canine respiratory issues in the United States. A lot of people worried about their animals right now. Atypical canine respiratory illnesses. What can you tell us about that and how concerned pet parents should be about their dogs? And I haven't had a chance to, to uh, research that, but I can tell you in general, our animals are well <laughs> immunized against serious problems like heartworm. Uh, fortunately, the uh, dogs and cats, they don't actually get the same viruses that animals do. It was demonstrated with COVID, for instance, a, a cat with a massive exposure could get it. Uh, the animals fight it off fine. You know, I wouldn't have any particular concern uh, unless we start seeing increased uh, mortality and in fatal cases in dogs. And if that happens, I'd encourage the owners to, uh, to consider an autopsy. But uh, we just haven't seen this right now. I think our pets will get through this just fine. Uh, I am concerned, though, that just with like with humans, there's been an accelerating vaccine agenda in our pets and livestock. And, you know, this could backfire. This could ultimately weaken the immunity or alter immunity, uh, relentless vaccinations without any uh, any long-term safety studies. I want to talk about that because I think all of us pet parents out there, we take our dogs or our cats to the vet and they want to shoot them up with five different things. And we're all kind of wondering, hey, is this a, a money grab here or is this really necessary? And then, you know, they, of course, they pull at the heartstrings saying, you know, for me, it's like, oh, if your chihuahua's outside and they roll in deer pee, they could get this and they could get that. I mean, there's a lot of things, but educate us a little bit on what our pets actually need and what you think might be going overboard. You know, I'm not a veterinarian. I'd have to refer you uh, to someone who really is in that field of, of science. Uh, but I can tell you this much. I've talked to some naturopathic veterinarians who, who believe in our very clean environments that we live in uh, with kind of, you know, clean food supplies, clean water supplies, that our animals don't have the same threats that they used to. And some naturopathic oriented veterinarians, they think the animals need no vaccines, whatsoever. So I think each one is an individual decision between the pet owner and the veterinarian uh, and to assume some reasonableness here. You know, every single vaccine that comes out doesn't immediately become medically necessary or clinically indicated. Each one should be evaluated on its own merit. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, last thing I want to ask you about, now this is just, I want to get your take on it. So I, as I'm sure you well know, doctor, we have millions of people from around the world coming in through our southern border. Not only are they undocumented, but we don't know really what they're bringing in, what they have, what kind of vaccines they have in their home country or lack of vaccines or, or what have you. How concerned is the medical community about the United States as it stands, allowing millions of people from around the world to come in really at once, being shuffled across to our various cities, being put in our school systems. Do you have any concerns that maybe they might be bringing in something that's that's unfamiliar to the United States, something that we should prepare for or something that you've seen that would indicate we need to better prepare for this? I haven't seen any reports in the medical literature. I mean, the great concern is tuberculosis, untreated tuberculosis. Uh, it's possible there's some other communicable diseases, uh, but most of the diseases that would occur, for instance, let's say Hispanics across the southern border, yeah, that would be a sister psychosis or a form of a, 
a parasitic infection that ultimately goes into the brain and causes seizures. And you know, I trained down here in Texas. We saw this uh, periodically at the at the county hospitals. Uh, but what we're not seeing is we're not seeing any type of reports to indicate you know who these people are, where are their belongings, um, where do they go. There's no embedded reporting. Uh, we don't have data from departments of education or labor or to kind of corroborate that such a large, massive number of people have crossed the southern border. So it's actually quite a mystery about what's really going on. Uh, the numbers that we've heard from both uh, the, the Democrats and the Republicans on the Hill is seven to eight million since the Biden administration started. And I haven't seen any credible uh, reflection that, in fact, you know, that's the entire population of Dallas-Fort Worth. You'd think you'd see some evidence of that, certainly in the state of Texas. And, and you know, I, I couldn't corroborate it right now. So I, I think as everything is presented to us, I think we have to be skeptical. Right. Well, I think that's the concern. And it's nothing against these people coming in from different parts of the world. It's just, you know, it's realistic to think that when you bring millions of people in from places around the world, that they're going to have things that we don't have. Maybe we have things that they don't have. I mean, it's just obvious if you look at the history of, you know, Europeans bringing disease to the United States. I mean, it's not it's not beyond the pale to suggest that maybe they've got stuff that we aren't prepared for or maybe the other way around. So I'd be curious to see how this is going to progress over the coming months in the coming years, because you just simply can't bring in that many millions of people. And then, you know, we're hearing 5,000 a day released into the United States. There's got to be something here that we're not prepared for. And I guess that's my concern, whether it be medical or whether it be terrorism. Uh, you know, it's just a lot of people to be bringing into the mix and not really having any information on a lot of these people. We'd have to see some embedded reporting and some testing to see indeed if those large numbers in fact are, are real and then what they have. And right now it's just, we just can't tell from the reporting what's going on. There's just nothing credible to, to, to validate that. So unfortunately that's where we are. That's in today's world of reporting. We used to have really good media and people would trace this out and we'd have good accounting. Uh, you know, our government agencies would have good accounting, but all the testimony we've heard on the Hill frustrated senators, congressmen, we, we just can't get to any answers. If it's seven to eight million people, where are they? Right. Well, they're dispersed all across the United States of America. But you brought up a good point, the you know, population of, of Dallas. That's uh, really concerning. Doctor, thank yeah. you as always for giving us the truth on all of this, telling us what we need to be concerned about and what maybe we can relax over, um, because it's really hard to believe the media. It's really hard to believe our government institutions right now. So we always appreciate you being honest and transparent with us. A very Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to you. And I'll see you in the new year. Thank you. Thanks, doctor.